This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am Janice Leibovitz and you are my People of the Book. And my guest today, really no stranger to anyone who reads, but no stranger and just no stranger to the South African personality landscape, Melinda Ferguson, welcome. So lovely to be with you in person. In person. It's just, it's very exciting, isn't it? So, Melinda, if you don't know, and this is in no particular order, Melinda is a publisher, an award-winning author, a speaker, a writer, and you're also a recovery coach. Yes. Are you still doing that? I sort of am. You sort of <laughs> I'm publishing so much that I almost don't have time for the coaching, but hopefully the books that I publish are kind of coaching people vicariously. Because a lot of them are recovery-based types of hopeful stories. Right. So um, I was privileged enough to be at the launch of um, the, what was it called? It was the Devil's Door book with Ben Ben Boyson. Uh, On the Devil's Trail. Yes, on the Devil's Trail. So I was privileged enough to be there. And then I interviewed Ben, actually. Yeah, he's Um, great. He's fantastic. He's Mm. a fabulous, fabulous guy. But... um, you basically, you, you spend your life, I mean, you are so busy, I don't know how many hours are in your day, it sounds like more than the rest of us, but you share your journey, and your journey is one from, from quite deep and dark um, addiction to recovery. You built your own new life, a career, business and financial savvy, you built yourself, you rebuilt yourself, you remade yourself from the ground up, and I think well, I did read Smacked, mm. which was your first book. And I think that people were quite, I mean, f- people were fangirling on you. They were fangirling, but <laughs> I also think they were quite shocked that a woman could confess to these really dark things that had happened to me or that I had caused myself in addiction. Like being a drug addict mother, like being gang raped in Hillbrow by by crack dealers you know I had just this dark dark journey into really the pits of hell in my heroin and crack addiction and then I wrote this book five years later and it kind of was a no holds barred gritty really was real take you down the journey of inside an addict's mind Um, and I think people you know I think a lot of people for a long time hoped and wished that I wouldn't you know didn't relapse because it you know you, you, you're teetering on the edge in those early always, years always um, but that was kind of what put me on the map that book and it opened so many doors it opened the door that sits that makes me sit with you today that is incredible and I remember back then I mean I think it was as you say your no holds barred truth mm. that as you say, shocked people, but I think that was the attraction. Mm-hmm. And I know it caused um, a, a bit of uh, friction with you and and, um, and NA, Narcotics Anonymous, mm. um, because they do have some rules. But in order to be truthful, in order to be genuine, you had to write as you did. And write as myself, because um, the 12-step programs usually say anonymity yes. is part of the tra- tradition. and. I just felt like if I was going to change my name and write about someone else and never be able to speak in public about that, what was the point? And part of, I think, sharing a journey of trouble and hardship is about hoping that people who also suffer can get hope that they too can transform. And that was a big part of, I think, the reason in the end why the book existed. And then you followed um, Smacked Up with Hooked and Crashed. Hmm. Yeah. 
And I know that crashed was, was particularly about the crashing of a Ferrari. The 3.2 million rand Ferrari that I took out to celebrate a 14-year clean and sober birthday, by the end of the day, it was lying in pieces in Benmore. You know, that was, a, that was such a hectic event, an unexpected but a terrible event that happened in my life. I, was a, I am a motoring journalist between everything yes. else. So this, this was given to me as a test drive, and I just literally made an error of judgment. I overtook a slow-moving truck. I landed up in an intersection and got T-boned by a Pajero. So that oh was just gosh. hectic. But it gave you a book out of it. It gave so. me a book. <laughs> and also, in some way, it really is connected to Bamboozled. Because what I seem to do is follow up my memoirs. Kind of, I end it somewhere, and I pick up with the next disaster or the next story that happens to me. And that is, of course, what we are here to chat about today. And that is your new book, Bamboozled, In Search of Joy in a World Gone Mad. Yep. And that is available in stores right now. And that's what we're going to be talking about throughout this show. This is People of the Book. And I'm chatting today to Melinda Ferguson. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I'm Janice Leibovitz, and my guest today is Melinda Ferguson, and we'll be chatting about her brand new book, Bamboozled. If you think her name is familiar, it is. She is a very well-known personality in South Africa, and your vibrancy and your your you dynamic, and you are you're colourful, and which is really quite amazing. But um, I know that that many people might know you have your own publishing house now. Yeah, MF. Books. It's an imprint of NB Publishers. I don't remember the Afrikaans. It's because it's NB eight of it. Yes, yeah. them. That's <laughs> so, one, yeah. and I mean, numerous, numerous books, best-selling titles since you started in 2013. But we're going to get more to that into how you started studying. Well, it's a journey. It's, it's a, a journey. journey. So, bamboozled starts off, and the cover says, "In search of joy in a world gone mad," but. You start off, and in the first section of the book, it's quite dedicated to death and suicide, mm. which I thought, uh, I was thinking, well, where's the joy? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it takes a while to get to the joy. It, it, yeah, it, it does, it does. And you are you, you had, at, at a time, quite an obsession with death, with suicide. It starts off with the murder of a neighbor mm. in a home that you hadn't yet even moved into mm. that was meant to become your sanctuary during the pandemic yes oh i mean that's like a bamboozle in itself i mean what i thought was going to be my place of heaven escaping from the city of cape town which at the time in 20 end of 2020 I don't know how many listeners were in Cape Town or in Joburg, actually in South Africa yes. in 2020. We had a new year where we were home by nine o'clock. There was curfew. It was so dark that night. I mean, in Cape Town particularly, there was a lot of military activity, helicopters, soldiers out on the streets. It felt like I was in the middle of The Handmaid's Tale. And um, that night, I literally realize that if I don't get out and find something that would give me some type of freedom and joy, that I would literally go insane. And um, funnily enough, or nicely enough, I'd received quite a lot of money where everybody else was seeming to be dead broke. Some 
miraculous thing had happened in my life during the first year of lockdown where someone who owed me a lot of money started paying me. Oh. I know. <laughs> so every time wow. I was looking at my bank account, it was like ping, ping, and money was coming in. And I felt almost guilty because there was a lot of, you know, suffering going on. And there I yes. was getting money in. And at the end of that year, the first year of lockdown, I thought, you know what? I never expected to get this money. I'm going to do something really special with it. I'm going to look for an escape from the pandemic house. And just as I thought I'd found heaven, it turned into hell because the woman two doors away was brutally murdered. And that's how my book starts. And I think in a way, if I just can carry on with it, because I do talk a lot, like <laughs> the idea of the bamboozle, which on one level can be deceit, trickery, but also on another level can be mystification and mystery and amazement. That is kind of what starts off with the idea of bamboozled. Well, that's incredible. And you spoke about your how, how you came across this idea of having a room of your own, or a home of your own. That was from Virginia Woolf. Mm. And you speak a lot also about her. But, but then during the beginning of lockdown, uh, you became obsessed with Love Island. <laughs> I know. Of Love Island. And reality TV. Oh. And I think... That was such an escape for all of us. Jeez, Love Island showed me the depths that I had sunk to. Because <laughs> I was so... I could not watch more death statistics on the news every day. We were counting how many people were infected, and how many I, people yeah, love were that dying. You, you called it... Um, <laughs> What was it? The theatre of the unreal. And it was this COVID race. The COVID, yeah. The, yes. the, the World Cup of COVID. Yeah, World Cup of COVID. The World Cup of Corona. Absolutely. And, and it, it felt, really was. It felt really displaced to be so consumed by fear. And that is basically all that I felt the media was giving us was fear, um, masks, fear, sanitizer, stay at home, don't do this, don't do this. And, and, and my basic character is one of freedom no rules i'm a bit of a chaotic anarchist to be honest at, at heart so this was really hard for me and the only thing i could literally focus on was love island which was so pathetic <laughs> and and so ridiculous because it's just about people on this love island and in it's, it's, so, it's so manipulated oh. and contrived and, and as you said you knew that that the scenes were being you know, created, manufactured, yeah. the conversations are manufactured to create the most hype and feedback and drama. Yeah. And quite, there was mass hysteria. But I mean, I remember that feeling. My, I remember my children saying to me when that lockdown was announced and curfews and, and this is closed, that's closed. And my kids said, are you going to be at home all the time? All day. Every yeah. night. And I try to explain kindly to them, they're not small children, they mm. are practically adults, uh, there is going to be nowhere to go. <laughs> yeah. And we thought it was three weeks. And then yes. after that first year, I really thought this would go on forever. You know, that forever. The timelines kept getting extended. It felt like we were sort of almost never knowing when it would end. It just seemed, and South Africa had a very harsh we lockdown. Had, we did. We had very stringent rules yeah. compared to many other places. And that, I mean, I'm jumping around here because now I'm going more towards the middle, um, the second half of the book, yeah. where you said, how the hell did we get here? How the hell did we get here? And that was a big thing. I call myself the, the Nancy Virus, uh, Nancy Virus Drew, <laughs> where I'm like going on this investigation of how we've landed up the whole world globally in lockdown 
and how we've actually agreed to it. Because that for me was fascinating. That people, there, there was very little resistance. And when there was resistance, it seemed like there was a huge amount of counter-resistance where you were just either wiped out on, on YouTube or arrested. The, the trucker convoy in Canada. I mean, there were a lot of things happening where the, the citizens of the country were of countries were trying to say no and then the next thing they were just silenced. Yes, and then that just disappeared. And then it disappeared. Yes. But I want to go back to a word that you mentioned, investigation. Yeah. Because investigation and in depth research is something that you absolutely excel. Thank at. you. And going back to the the whole Love Island thing, you then followed that up because you wanted to know what happened to Sophie Graydon? Did she, she won. She, she Sophie won? Yes. didn't win. Oh, she didn't. I, I don't know. I didn't watch. No, she didn't, didn't watch the UK. She got messed up by Tom the barman. Oh, Tom the barman. Tom the barman. Okay. But she, yeah, carry on. So you then followed up. You wanted to know what had happened to her after being messed up. Yeah. And after going through. I mean, Love Island is. It's. It's a hell of an experience. It's, yeah. And I'm not saying it's necessarily a good one. It's, a, it's, it's got brutal. its own post-trauma yeah. Yeah. In, uh, associated with it. And you then followed up with what happened to her. Yeah. And I and discovered yes. that she committed suicide. And, you know, in my book, I've, 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 I've spoken about initially about my own um, suicidal ideation. I mean, from a little girl, I was very confused after my father died very quickly in front of me of a heart attack. And I confused life and death on quite a profound level from a small age. And then, of course, while I was on on drugs, I was always thinking of ways to get out, like as in kill myself. I've always been fascinated by people like people like Virginia Woolf and Sylvia Plath. So... Her killing herself kind of fits into this broader theme of death. And then, after I now follow the breadcrumbs like a little Red Riding Hood, I think it was Red Riding Hood in the fairy tale, I suddenly realize that Caroline Flack, the presenter, has also killed herself. So it becomes quite a macabre story after, you know, the frivolity of Love Island and then suddenly the darkness of this very brutal reality show that creates the circumstances for Sophie to kill herself and Caroline, who who I think he, she hits her boyfriend and he, you know, yes, he, he lays he, a charge yes. against her. And then in, in absolute shame. And her contract was cancelled. I her, think that yeah, was... Yeah, her, her contract yeah, was, was cancelled from this big show that had made her a household and name. And they were about to, I think, begin filming season the Cape six. The Town one. No, they were about to start with season six. Yes. And they removed her. And they removed yeah, her. And, and she it was, broke Yeah, her that broke her. Completely. And she landed up killing herself. Yeah. So these two women, and then the woman who had been murdered two doors away. So this... Dear dear listeners, do not be depressed because the book is also quite funny. It's not just... It's very funny. Raw yeah, humor is, it, it's, is just it's, fantastic. It's not all dark and depressing, no. but these were things that were absolutely taking hold of my, my life during lockdown because I had plenty of time to read. And the, I, I was fascinated by... I mean, I always knew that Sylvia Plath had killed herself. Yeah. But your description, your in-depth description, it was so detailed. I was quite fascinated. Oh, I'm so glad. And your 
the details that you gave about how she put her children to bed and she left them and it was milk and bread mm. and everything and she went and she sealed the door mm. so that no, none of the gas because she gassed herself in the oven yeah and none of the gas would leak into their room mm. and I found that fascinating. Once again, your research and I the amount of depth that you went into. Thank you. Sorry for interrupting you. I even researched quite in detail the weather. During 1963, early 1963, when Sylvia Plath finally gasses herself at the age of 32, it was called the Big Chill or the Big yes, Freeze. Yes. One of the coldest winters in the UK on record. So I try to imagine how this woman who was now trapped with two little children, husband was having two affairs with two other women, and this woman who was a genius poet must have felt trapped in this little apartment. On Fitzroy Road, I think. Yes, it, it is. I think it was William Yates's old house. Yes, yeah. Twenty-three. So Fitzroy. you can imagine, I was going on many rabbit holes. As I researched one thing, it would lead me yes. to the weather. Then I would, you know, do this and this. So, so, so in a way, the book takes people. I think not on a chronological or. A oh no, the book is not chronological at all. No, not at all. <laughs> it's it is kind of an associative type of book where one thing as a investigator would leads to another which finally hopefully leads to the place of joy and it does do that this is Janice Leibovitz and I'm chatting to Melinda Ferguson about her new book Bamboozled I love it when you read to me this is people of the book with Janice Leibovitz you are listening to People of the Book, and I am thrilled to have my guest here today, Melinda Ferguson, author of Smacked, Hooked, and Crashed, and now she's bamboozled. <laughs> so <laughs> that is the title of her latest book. And we've been talking initially, I mean, it says that the, the book is in search of joy in a world gone mad. And we're talking about the fact that the whole introduction, the first section of the book, is a lot about death. And you end that section describing your own suicide attempt in 1998. Yes. Which was a very dark day. I mean, I, I, I write, there's a bit of black humor because my husband has gone to watch the Titanic. I've found out that Titanic is three hours and something minutes, which will give me enough time to hopefully die before he comes back home. Of course, I don't do it properly because I'm still alive. And <laughs> I land up just, you know, botching up that suicide attempt. I'm pregnant at the time. I'm a heroin addict. I'm in Clarksdorp, of the worst places in the world to land up being an addict and depressed. And so it's a very dark thing, but also in a weird way, kind of darkly humorous, because this woman who's trying to kill herself just can't kind of get it right. And just moving on, and as you said, the book is not chronological at all. It jumps a lot back to Melinda's childhood, her childhood memories, her drug addiction and everything that she went through in the, her previous three books. As I said, um, Smacked, Hooked and Crashed. And I love your, your catchy one-word titles. They mm -hmm. are brilliant. And you speak about rooms as prisons, mm. which I found um, particularly interesting. You, you describe it as returning to a feeling when your father passed away, of feeling caged. And you speak, and then Jimi Hendrix passed away. Mm. And you speak about, I love, I love that um, description because you, 
you know, you, the rooms as prisons, and that that leads further on in the book to our lockdown, lockdown. and yeah. and all of that, and the the isolation mm. of the pandemic. And I mean, isolation in itself is deadly. Mm. Isolation is just deadly. But you also mentioned a concept that I'd never heard of before: PGD, prolonged grief disorder. Yeah, and I think. I, I don't know how long we're going to be suffering the effects of that, but I think it's going to be a very, very long time. And one line in particular caught my eye. You said, what happens to a world where tears are shed alone? It was terrible, and I think people are still traumatized. Absolutely. It's not even was. It is, a, it is a thing that has happened to us as human beings where people had to watch their loved ones, if they were lucky enough to even be allowed on the hospital grounds, through a window. Um, sometimes families could not even have a funeral together. They, we didn't. We were not able to grieve in the way that we were once used to. And to have prolonged grief disorder kind of arrests one's um, transformation and acceptance from like what usually we, we go through with death is, is, is there's a denial system. But the, finally, there's an acceptance. I think a lot of people are still really struggling because the tears have not been shed in the way that were that we once were able to. And what happens to this world? Well, it's going to be interesting to see over the next few years. I think that people really need help at the moment. True. I think it's not just grief for the people we lost. It was grief for businesses that closed down. Grief for the way that we once saw the world as a safer place than what it is now. You know, there are many different levels. Subconsciously, I think we've been program now to believe that anything could happen and we're not safe as as human beings anymore i mean it, i could go on for hours about this this disorder that i think we're suffering from yeah and i think as you say it's going to be very interesting to see in the next few years mm. because as our young people become adults and start moving into positions where they are working positions of leadership mm. These are young people who missed out. Missed out. On, so, I mean, we all missed out on a lot. We all lost so much. But our young people in particular mm. who missed out on so many things. Milestones. milestones. Almost, hey? Yes, yeah. they, they did. They missed out yeah. on milestones. People who postponed weddings, then canceled weddings. And, re, you know, things. Where Children are, who went to school with masks for two and a half years who never could see each other's expressions. Well, I they, mean, that happened with babies. They were wondering yeah. why babies weren't learning how to smile. It was because they never saw anyone smile. They didn't see the bottom half of, of people's faces. Mm. And it will be interesting to see if the very young children move on and are able to desensitize themselves from what memories they might have mm. of this time. I mean, I find myself even thinking, oh, how ridiculous. Can you believe mm. Mm. how it was when you think of those empty streets and, and, you know. We are now in this post-COVID. Um, we are trying to assimilate, I think, what happened to us and what's happened to our world. And I think that the absurdity of certain things, and I know that, look, there was a pandemic. There's no denying it hurt people. It killed some people. It was a, it was a hectic time, but there was a lot of overreach. I think that started happening because governments didn't really know what they were doing, and we were being kind of dictated by the World Health Organization that made a kind of ruling for everybody. And I think that's always dangerous, because South Africa was a very different place to say Absolutely. Israel or to New Zealand. South Africa, I think, 
in some way had the hardest lockdown because of all these rules, but had the least uh, fatalities, which I found really interesting because people lived in township. Um, townships, people lived in very close proximity. A lot of the people in this country do not have the luxury of driving alone to work. But the, the, the fatalities were actually relatively low in this country. And you're talking about privilege, I mean, you, and you mentioned in the book, mm. you know, we were isolated, we were locked up in our rooms, in mm. our homes. Some had mansions, some had mm. smaller ho- homes, some were under bridges. Yeah. A lot of people were yes. under bridges. I mean, during that new year of, of 2020, I really felt the homeless people of the, of, of the, Cape, of the city of Cape Town, I, I felt so much pain for these people. And also my privilege at sitting going on Property 24 and looking for somewhere to escape. And this complete schizophrenia. And I think we all in South Africa have this, yes. especially as white people, and this white privilege thing is a big thing, where we, we are aware of the suffering and then we carry on living in our bubbles because that is the way it is. And that is what we are used to. Yeah. And that's, I always say, that's one of the, the deadliest quotes, the deadliest sayings, the deadliest catchphrases. That's the way it's always been. Yeah. It, it's a very, it's a very dangerous way to just say that's just the way it is, that's and heartlessly turn one's back. Someone asked me recently, um, "What is the best advice I can give her for her children?" And one of the things I said to her was, "Well, my daughter popped up. She said, my mother always says, don't look behind you. You're not going that way.' <laughs> and <laughs> which is true. But I said one of the greatest things we can teach our children, and which we all should have learned, but have not, there's many people that haven't one of the greatest gifts we can give our children is to teach them flexibility yeah. and to teach them open-mindedness that i mean i know some people are planners and i know in the writing world some people are planners some people are pantsers that they fly by the seat of their pants if you are a planner and i know some people are pedantic planners but if something doesn't go their way they are bamboozled. And I and think, oh, sorry. Yeah, they, they, are, they don't know. And I think we, we need to teach our children that things do not always go according to mm-hmm. plan. Sometimes it's according to someone else's plan. And I think that's what's really interesting, Janice, is that if we have to look at the good things that have come out, because it is time and they now. Are, we and, they to, are, and they are. And they are some. To, um, is to actually look at that idea of flexibility, of, res, of, of, of resilience, of being able to adapt to a mad world because we were kept on having to adapt, adapt, adapt to new rules, new curfew times, new this, new variants. I think that the payoff might be that we as human beings are strengthened because there's been a time of suffering and times of suffering always land up giving us wisdom if we want it and if we delve deeply enough into our own role and what we can learn from things. I feel very enriched at the moment. I feel joyful having gone for a journey of truth and interrogation. Funnily enough, I might not have found like the missing link in terms of happiness, but, but, but going and delving deeply into what was going on and what was going on inside me has given me great peace and a sense of joy. Absolutely. And we, we've reached, uh, hopefully, more enlightenment. Yeah. One would hope. But moving on with the book, you spoke about in 2014, you had studied, you studied to be a publisher. You established um, MF, MF, Books, Pub- MF Books. Was that in 2013? Yes. 
That was where I started with Chicana. Yes. Yeah. So you're now a publisher and you are looking very successful, mm. but you were suffering terribly from what we now know is called imposter syndrome. Yeah. And you looked like you were Happening. successfully recovered. Mm. You had come through it. You had built yourself a career. Why the imposter syndrome, which I know is common, mm. but for you? I think I'd been really concentrating on the material. And the material is a wonderful, it's a kind of a great mask to cover that which is wrong within. So, I mean, that was the time I was driving that Ferrari, you know. I mean, I had all the best clothes. I was, had a good job. Everything looked great. But I had a big hole in my soul. And I had not really been pursuing a spiritual journey. I had put everything onto myself. I was living in ego big time. And I kind of thought I was quite fantastic. But I was actually not. I was still a very broken person because I hadn't really done the work the real healing work on my broken, pre-addicted self and the, and the ravages that addiction had done to my life and the people around me. But the, the reason why you were so focused on the material and the financial parts of your life, it stemmed from losing your father so suddenly yeah. when you were, were young and your mother being left with four of you mm. to raise and, and there was no finances to do that with. I know. And, the, and my mother drank during our childhood. And then my addiction took me into the alleys of Hillbrow and I landed up homeless. So, of course, what I would do in my recovery was to try and make money. Because money, as much as I'm like saying, oh, materialism, money is that passport that allows us to do things in this life. If you don't have money, you are on the edge of absolute disaster. Because everything is costing something. So, but I think the overfocus on money and not uh, also trying to nurture the spirit is what puts people in a place of imbalance. And yes. by 2013, which was when I have the accident, I was in a state of great imbalance. And I think we're talking about it puts people on the fr it puts people on the fringes of, of society yeah, as well. Yeah. And it's very difficult. Only very few people are able to reestablish themselves, to come back and, and be a part of society yeah. once they have been on the edges mm. like that. And you you know that. I'm, mm. I don't even I'm talking to the converted here. <laughs> but then you discover something, again, lots of research, lots of intense reading and background info that you give is amazing. You discover something called, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, um, Sal... Psilocybin. Psilocybin. Mm. Which, and your experience, your initial experience was, was that what led you to the book title? Because you say in the book that your first journey with it um, left you bamboozled. Left me bamboozled. Left me mystified at the same time. For those of you who don't know, um, psilocybin's street name or real name is Magic Mushrooms in the real world. Yes. Um, it's a psychedelic. I often tell, I sort of point people to the Netflix series called How to Change Your Mind, which is a brilliant documentary um, that really explains what this new kind of uh, healing, approach to healing, to psychiatric disorders like addiction, depression, anxiety. And there's been amazing results amongst great researchers like Johns Hopkins University. Yes. I mean, I could count a whole lot of them that have been doing research in the last decade or so 
to show that that psilocybin, magic mushrooms, has amazing potential to help with things like anxiety, depression, and 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 and, and addiction, just to name a three, a few, a three, a three, a three. <laughs> And as you say in the book, this is not a drug. It's a teaching and a healing. Yeah. I mean, I'm not talking about people who take shrooms and chomp a few and go to a music festival, drink a bottle of tequila and fall over and then have a joint. It's not a social happy jaw. This is not what what I got involved in. Because also, you know, Janice... For me as a recovering addict, a, a, a kind of a well-known recovering addict because of my first book, Smacked, and a proponent of 12-step program and all or nothing, do not ever venture off the road. You know, it, it, it was very scary for me to go and, and go on my first journey. But I had done a lot of research. I'd been told by a very trusted psychiatrist who was at the same time my boyfriend Get off the psychiatric meds, which I was on. They weren't working for me. I'm not telling other people to get off. I was just not. I was dealing with side effects and no good effects from my my medication. And my life had become very almost zombified at that point. I was very, I I was operating on half a cylinder. Long story short, I decided to do this mushroom journey in Somerset West, I think it was in March 2015. My terror at doing this thing was immense. I write a lot about it. I mean, yes. I put people in that position. I'm lying there with a group of about 30 people, all on mattresses in this room. I don't know what is going to happen to me. I take five grams, which is the therapeutic dose. I wished I could have run out, grabbed my car keys and just left because I was so scared. And I just sorry to interrupt you. I just want to make it very clear when you say you took five grams. This was a, an amount that was measured yes. out very carefully and given to Melinda. Yeah, and monitored by experts. It's not like you just experts. went in and helped yourself no. and did your own thing. Yeah. That's not how it was at all. So yeah, yeah. Let's just put everyone in case <laughs> you're just tuning in. Very, I just went and had five grams of mushrooms. No, it wasn't like that. And then you know, in this situation and setting is everything. The intention was for me to go on a journey to try and address my PTSD, my anxiety, and my insane sense of not feeling connected to to in, inside myself. What happened that night after about an hour? Because, I mean, I was very resistant. So I think if one is resistant, it, it actually takes a long time to go over. But what happened that night was probably, and I, I say this very with great surety, the most profound experience of my entire life. I landed up going to a place within myself that I never even dreamed was possible. I went on a journey where I lost the sense of normal time. I lost my ego. I lost my controlling voice. I lost my denial system. And I went on a journey where I experienced joy for the first time in my life. A proper, happy, real, fulfilling joy. And you started off, though, with 100% truth. Because when you went around and all introduced yourself, yourselves, you yeah. very openly said that you were terrified mm. that this was going to take you back on the journey through addiction. It was going to yeah. drop you back in there. And, you know, that was the risk. It felt like the most risky thing I'd ever done. But there was another little part of me that was screaming for something to help me navigate this other stuff that was going on 
And um, you know that the real difference, because I've taken almost every drug on the planet. I've been an alcoholic. I've been a drug addict. I knew that this substance was different when I woke up the next morning and I felt totally full. I felt at peace and there wasn't a single microbe inside me that wanted more. And the, the, the definition in a way of addiction is, is, the, is, is the constant search for more. Yes. There was nothing. The idea of doing more mushrooms was so far and like there was nothing in me that wanted to do more. It was literally like this is done. And there was none of that residual that you would normally get from a hangover no, or a... nothing. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. But coming out of that, you had been through your 12 steps and, and the fourth step of making a list of all the people who you had wronged and, mm. and the fifth step of, of apologizing. So we, we are... That struck me because we're coming up to our new year, Rosh Hashanah, mm. and one of the things that we are supposed to do in the lead up to that new year is to apologize to people. Yeah. And uh, they say that you, if the person doesn't accept your apology, I think it's you, you ask them for forgiveness three times. And after that third time, if they still don't accept it, then that, that feeling or whatever it is that you're apologizing for removes itself from you and transfers oh, wow. onto them. That's beautiful. But your concept here of saying sorry, and it made me wonder, well, who's the sorry for? Is it for, is it for yourself? Is it for them? And you say quite openly, as you say everything, that some people didn't accept your, yeah. your apology. My brother, I mean, I don't think he'll listen to this, <laughs> but my brother is that person in my life. Um, I have said sorry. I've written him letters. I mean, it's all springs from Smacked, the first book I wrote. Yes. Um, I wrote a lot of detail about the childhood we had, and I wrote about our mother and her drinking. And my brother just did not want us to, well, he didn't want to see the dirty laundry of the family. And, you know, in retrospect, I really understand. But as I say in this new book, Bamboozled, I was a woman literally sinking that book took me out of this terrible darkness and put me into the light so as much as i knew later that the consequences of that book had damage on my family the the, the upside of that book had so much more positivity my brother i would love to have a relationship with him but I can't keep, I mean, I haven't just done the Rosh Hashanah thing of three times. I have done 30 times and he still closes the door. So this book in many ways has allowed me to finally say, I need to have peace. He knows that I'm sorry. And, 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 and to forgive is another thing. And you cannot force a person Absolutely to forgive Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You are listening to People of the Book, and today I'm chatting to Melinda Ferguson. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I'm Janice Leibovitz. This is People of the Book, and my guest today is Melinda Ferguson, and we're chatting about her book, Bamboozled, her brand new book, In Search of Joy in a World Gone Mad. And... I've said right through this this interview is your the amount of research you do and the in-depth reading that you do when it comes to, to anything. When you talk about addiction, you are not only talking about your own addiction. You're mm. not talking about your own relationship with alcohol and, and you know, being alcoholic. But 
when I think it was in America, I can't remember what year, I know it's in the book, the war on drugs mm. and substance abuse, mm. the way you read up on that mm. and the way you wanted to hear it from all sides, it shows that you weren't only immersed in your own journey. You wanted to know how the world views this. What is their view? How are they going to deal with it? And you went into that in huge depth, which, I mean, I don't, I don't have the, I, I start reading all these things and I'm like, right, get the gist, finished. But but you don't do that. No. I, I, this is the first book, because my other three are deeply personal. I hardly ever talk about anyone but myself in my first three well, books. Well, that's what a memoir is. Yes, but this <laughs> yes. book, I had this feeling the world is bigger than you and you need to go out and search. It's you in the world and it always is from my perspective of course my attitude towards the war on drugs some people might think it was a good thing i believe myself that it was a very um very dangerous war and i think it misrepresented many things like psychedelics psychedelics in the late 50s were being used in the psychiatric industry with great great results the war on drugs happens richard nixon start you know takes over america and suddenly And in my book, I did a lot of research that the war on drugs was in many ways a war on black people, a war on Mexicans, a war on the other. And the best way for them to control the other populations of of America was in many ways to make things illegal where they could arrest people. And I put a lot of statistics down of like their 10 to 1 black people to one white person in American prisons. American prisons are overcrowded. I mean, I could go on about this forever. You know, and then putting mushrooms next to heroin and crack cocaine is actually a complete lie. And I think what's really interesting at the moment, Janice, is that there's a lot of truth coming out at the moment. Things are being uncovered. And the work that psychedelics was stopped with the war on drugs, how they stopped It's all started resurging. There are many states in America that are either decriminalizing. There's much research that's happening in the psychiatric world of our. our, 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 And and so I'm very hopeful that that we're going to be able to reimagine the idea of mental health in years to come. And I mean, while we have made huge advances. Um, in mental health and mental health study and understanding of it, I think we still do have a long way to go. Oh, huge way to go. Because, I mean, I can go and talk about Big Pharma, but Big Pharma controls so much of the mental health industry. I write about oxytocin, the fentanyl, uh, opiate addiction in America, which has taken millions and millions of people's lives who've OD'd on supposedly legitimate opioid medication endorsed by the FDA. Yeah, exactly. But moving on, then we get to lockdown. We get to the pandemic. Are we only there now? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to race through through the rest. And the the one thing that struck me, it was, to me, such a poignant little paragraph in the book is that before lockdown, you were planning a tattoo. (laughs) Um... But now all the tattoo shops are closed. Oh, didn't you find that sad? I know. I really it was such a did. small thing, but it was like such no, a huge thing. And especially because of what you wanted the tattoo to say. And to me, that was 
it was just, you know, if you want to know what the tattoo was going to say, you have to go out and buy Melinda's book, <laughs> Bamboozled, which is what we're chatting about now. But to me, that it kind of summed up, yeah. you know, how that, that, you know, everything was closed. All our plans were scuppered. Gone. Yeah. Gone, disappeared, gone. And I think that's part of that prolonged grief disorder that we spoke about yes. is that all those things, like my son's graduation, I know it was just my son, but it was cancelled. Yeah. And I never saw him graduate. I didn't, my, my, my boyfriend's beautiful daughter, she didn't have a matric dance. There were a lot of little, I mean, they sound like such trivial things, but they were milestones and They're things that trivial. were important for people. They were not trivial at all. Mm. And for everyone, it was personal. Mm. It's, it's personal. But going into lockdown, I mean, that the feeling of having to not go out, not go anywhere, mm. it brought back a lot of your memories of your post, your immediate post-addiction days where you were yeah. in a room, in your mother's, your mother's house, house and, and the relationship that you had with her. Yeah. So that brought all of that back. Yeah, it did bring up all of that stuff. And there was nowhere to go. I mean, the first, in, in part two, no, part three, which is, is lockdown. Yes. I mean, my first line in part three is to my boyfriend, you have to get us suicide pills and not toilet yes. paper. I yes. mean, which is kind of like funny in a way because that everyone was going mad for the toilet paper. But Janice, I really thought... That if we needed to, we needed to get out like and have an option. And I know this sounds really dark. And Matt just looked at me and told me, like, just calm down. But but I was I was debating death on a major level during lockdown. And I think a lot of people I think were. a lot of people were. Yeah. And I think that was very real. And specifically I found in South Africa. Because mm. uh, I know in other countries they had things like bubbles that if you lived on your own, yeah. you created a bubble with the people who lived nearby, next door you or mm. whatever it was. We didn't have that. We didn't have that. But we had a lot of people telling on each other in neighborhood groups. And I write about the virtual Stasi, <laughs> which I'm sure some people won't like. Um, but I mean, I was fascinated how many people interfered with each other. Oh, You yes. know, go and tell on your neighbor because you're never took the dog out to make a poo on the pavement I mean really was that really affecting you did you were you hurting anyone people who went and surfed and remember that um, the incident where they burnt the mini down yes in Seapoint because the guy gave homeless people food and I mean you just were going what monsters were coming out like a monstrous edge was coming out of people that you were never suspecting them of, of, of being. I was shocked. I mean, when I started making any noises on Facebook, I was told I was a member of QAnon. I, I supported Donald Trump. I was a Nazi. I mean, those kinds of things were very deep and dark, like insults to a person. And that was just because I was saying what was going on. And I think there were two sides to this whole lockdown COVID mm. coin because – so many people, it brought out the best in humanity, mm -hmm. but in other ways, it, brought out it really brought out the worst. And I think as it was extended, the worst started overshadowing the good. There was so much anger, just and it's so much anger. And to see what happens to people when they are pushed beyond comfort zones. I was watching myself behaving like a lunatic sometimes. Other times I was helping other people and I was doing each one feed one and doing feeding schemes. And then other times I was just like completely self-absorbed and, and crying in my own little room at my own plans that were going awry. Yeah. 
you know, it was it was interesting to see ourselves in such a unusual situation. And this is now what we were saying earlier that that hopefully we've learned mm. so much, but in other ways we're still going to see that there are so many that. They will never learn. And they they want to go back to the way it always was. Mm. The way it always was is gone. It's gone. And there were a lot of problems with the way it was. Yes, that we didn't acknowledge or we didn't want to acknowledge. Yeah. yeah. And the way it always was is not the way it necessarily needs to be or can be. And it will never going be forward. again. We're not going to get no. it back. No. Try as well. But we need to look for other ways to, to create ourselves and our lives and exactly. the environment so i think we need to we need to really look at that but the book is not all doom and gloom <laughs> no really i promise you it's not but if you do want to know who murdered the neighbor you've got to buy the book as i said um bamboozled melinda ferguson and it, it's if you follow melinda and lots of people follow you sorry they do <sighs> I know it's 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 so stalk. We live in such a stalkerish Stalky world. A stalkerish world. We're all stalkers, and you know, Melinda doesn't only. I mean, she says she talks a lot about herself. Let me tell you something. What she does for other people is beyond incredible. The books that she has published and the authors who fall under her stable. I mean, I know you're not a horse, <laughs> but the, those authors. Mm. I have published beautiful books. I mean. Terry Angelos, White Trash. I read that. Yeah, I mean, White Trash is quite fabulous. Um, I, I could list the 70 that I've published, but I'm not going to do that today. You know, I've got a feeling that, like, the book is um, something that, that is like a, a special a special gift today that we have to still delve into ideas and, and, and look at how people's lives have transformed and how we are all actually potentially heroes in our own stories. And I love doing yeah, those kinds I of agree. books. And I think that the biggest gift that you give in this book, as you gave with your others, is your 100% unadulterated truth. Mm. And there are not many people who are that open and truthful and genuine about their experiences, about their lives, and about what they've gone through to reach the point that they are at now. And I really just thank you for that. And we look forward to the next one. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure, really. I could chat to you for hours and mm. hours and hours but it really has been amazing having you as my guest Melinda and if you have only just tuned in we've been talking about Melinda Ferguson's new book Bamboozled in search of joy in a world gone mad go and get it where all your favorite books are sold thank you so much and to you like I always tell you take care of yourself take care of each other love what you do and read a book